So what is radio? Radio is the technology of communication using radio waves. Electromagnetic waves between 30 Hz and 300 GHz are generated by an electronic device called a transmitter, which sends out the waves and are received by a radio receiver. Radio technology is used in all forms of other technologies too. From the radio itself, television broadcasts, cell phones, two-way radios, wireless networking and satellite communication all uses forms of radio. But for the purposes of this podcast, we shall be looking at the radio itself as the invention. For most of human history, we have been fascinated by the relationship between electricity and magnetism. In Greece, electricity in the form of lightning was attributed to Zeus, the king of the gods. In the Roman myths, it was Jupiter commanding atmospheric electricity. Thunder and lightning were his ways of communication. There was much philosophical interest in both electricity and magnetism, such as Anaximander of Miletus, 610-546 BC, who attributed thunder and lightning not to the gods, but the interaction of physical and atmospheric elements. While Empelodes and Aristotle both somewhat subscribed to these theories too, thinking it was something about the clouds rubbing against each other to create fire. From its beginnings in the late Victorian period in experimental labs, radio has become ubiquitous and a constant presence in our lives. Like photography before it, it is a natural phenomenon, but has been expanded upon and developed by humans to be as useful as possible to our needs. And like photography, it has opened up a new form of human interaction, able to infuse, entertain, entice, enrage, and inform. So what is radio? Radio waves are not made the same. A product of man-made and natural sources. Radio is the transmission radiation of electromagnetic energy, such as heat and light. Radio waves oscillate and are invisible to the human eye. Radio waves are longer and oscillate more slowly, meaning they move at a lower frequency than visible light, though they travel at the same speed of light. Whereas light travels between 430 to 790 terahertz, radio travels between 3 gigahertz and 3 kilohertz. To further hammer home the point of electromagnetism, some radio waves have long wavelengths, some have short wavelengths. The long radio waves have the lowest frequencies, and the shortest radio waves have the highest frequencies. The electromagnetic spectrum is large and contains everything, from radio waves, microwaves, infrared, visible light and ultraviolet rays, to X-rays and gamma rays, that's going from the lowest frequency to the highest. The International Telecommunications Union itself divides up the radio spectrum into nine categories, from tremendously high frequencies to tremendously low. Most of the music and speech radio stations broadcast are at the very high frequency range. The popular KISS FM in Los Angeles broadcasts at 102.7 MHz. Radio 2 in Britain has a range of frequencies across the country, from around 88 to 91 MHz. 
Frequencies around this range have a wavelength of around 3 meters and are desirable for high broadcast quality of music and speech. Very high frequency or VHF waves are less affected by atmospheric noise and interferences from electrical equipment and perhaps most importantly can too be received indoors. VHF waves travel along straight lines and therefore cannot travel over the horizon. But with careful locations and tall radio masts hundreds of metres into the air, VHF can get a broadcast radius of around 100 miles. In the UK, broadcasting to the whole island, the BBC requires 39 separate transmitter stations for Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the Scottish Islands in order to achieve national coverage. Medium waves, meanwhile, are capable of travelling or propagating a long distance, while short waves can travel to almost anywhere on Earth. International broadcasting services like BBC World Service use this to skip into territories where radio signals may be limited or there is little radio infrastructure. Greek philosopher and mathematician Thales of Miletus is credited with discovering that amber, when rubbed with fur, produces a force that attracts smaller and lighter objects such as dust or grass. He observed similar phenomena with lodestone and pieces of iron. One can imagine Thales walking around Greece, rubbing things together to see if it produced any electromagnetism. Thales did not believe in the God argument either. He thought nature could provide an explanation. But he could not have believed that static electricity and magnetism were the two related but very different forces. During a lecture demonstrating electricity at the University of Copenhagen in 820, Professor Hans Christian Orsted, 1777-1851, made a discovery. By chance, he observed that a compass needle ever so slightly twitched when in close proximity to a wire carrying an electrical current, deflecting it away from true magnetic north. The effect made no impact on the audience, but proved, however subtly, the impact was demonstrable between magnetism and electricity. A year later in England, Michael Faraday, 1791-1867, built a homopolar motor at the Royal Institute. It was a piece of loose hanging wire dipped in a mercury pool in which a magnet was placed, demonstrating that magnets and current carrying wires produced a rotational force. Another decade later, and Faraday's research into electromagnetic induction demonstrated a changing magnetic field could induce electrical currents at a distance. Within a decade of Orsett's observation, Scientists were now contemplating the potential for transmitting messages over considerable distances using electromagnetism. Within five years, this thought had resulted in practical systems for communication when William Cook and Charles Wheatstone demonstrated their electrical telegraph. The two worked with legendary engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel to link stations along the Great Western Railway. From here, the electrical telegraph grew and grew, and by 1900 there were 15,000 telegraphs across Britain's railway network. So going back a moment, 
By the 1860s, James Clark Maxwell had seen the growth of the telegraph. But difficulties for telegraphers endured. Electromagnetic distortions, called retardation at the time, affected long-range communication over wires. Lord Kelvin would find a solution by laying a second Atlantic cable in 1866, after the first failed due to degradation. James Clark Maxwell sought a theoretical solution as to why this happened. Maxwell went on to produce a coherent theory, expressed through formula and mathematical equations. Maxwell made numerous scientific breakthroughs. He demonstrated electromagnetic energy does not travel in a straight line, preferring to oscillate in waveform. Second, that electromagnetic speed travelled at the same speed of light. For Maxwell, this was more than a coincidence. Quote, the agreement of the results seem to show that light and magnetism are affections of the same substance, and that light is an electromagnetic disturbance propagated through the field according to electromagnetic laws. These theories confused the scientific community. Physicists struggled to understand the maths, and the mathematicians struggled with the physics. By recognising that light and magnetism were two expressions of the same force, electromagnetics and science of light became one expanded understanding of electromagnetism. With Newton producing the first unification of physics, Maxwell therefore can be seen as producing the second great unification. It was 20 years later until Heinrich Hertz was able to prove Maxwell's theory. Using a spark gap connected to a one metre piece of wire to create electromagnetic radiation and a basic antennae set some distance away, Hertz produced, detected and conclusively demonstrated the existence of electromagnetic waves. A general conference on weights and measures later recognised Hertz's contribution to the field when the standard measure of frequency was named Hertz, HZ, in his honour. Maxwell and Hertz were pure scientists, uninterested in practical applications. Hertz reportedly told a student about his discovery, quote, It is no use whatsoever. This is just an experiment that proves Maestro Maxwell was right. We just have these mysterious electromagnetic waves that we cannot see with the naked eye, but they are there." Close quotes. When one student asked, what's next? Hertz said, nothing I guess. But of course, that didn't turn out to be true. Sir Oliver Heaviside said in 1891, quote, three years ago, electromagnetic waves were nowhere. Shortly afterwards, they were everywhere. Close quotes. By the turn of the century, Electromagnetism had become theatre, moving away from quiet science. Public demonstrations were showing off electricity jumping through the air, and the wireless signals working over long distances was a great draw for audiences. The electrical exhibition held in Madison Garden in May 1898 was a great success. Nikola Tesla was showing off to America's great and good, like J.P. Morgan and W.K. Vanderbilt, his technology of a radio being controlled by a boat. A mix of mechanical engineering and electromagnetic science. It was a mix which was beyond what most could believe at the time.
Tesla said his build would be the first kind of automation, which in time may eventually result in an object being able to act without human control. Despite being so far ahead of its time, sank, pardon the pun, without trace. The first practical application of electromagnetism in war can be seen with the Spanish-American War, when mines were detonated wirelessly when attached to the bottom of Spanish warships. But despite Tesla's inventiveness and creativity, he would not, like in much of his career, get the recognition he deserved. This includes both in the popular consciousness and with New York financiers. Indeed, when Marconi came along and started to use some of Tesla's patents, Tesla is reputed to have said, quote, Marconi is a good fellow. Let him continue. He is using 17 of my patents, close quotes. However, Tesla became incensed when Marconi was awarded a patent that effectively awarded the credit for the invention of the radio to Marconi, while in 1909, Marconi was awarded the Nobel Prize for his contribution to the development of wireless telegraphy. Early radio history is mired in controversy and accusations about theft of technology and dishonesty. It is almost the story of mankind and our base human instincts. Without getting into the minutiae of the debates, it is safe to say there is still a great deal of controversy about who created the radio with it still being debated by nationalists, academics and radio enthusiasts. The most famous names banded about are that of James Clark Maxwell, Heinrich Rudolf Hertz and Marconi. While other names like Reginald Fassenden, Oliver Lodge, Jadish Kandara Bose and Tesla sometimes get the credit too. These names have all been labelled as the inventor of the radio. But the problem is, the radio is not a singular technology. The radios we have in our houses and cars are the results of centuries of incremental improvement in discovery and development of infrastructure. In 1820, information could only be travelled as quickly as man could travel, whether on foot, ship or horseback. When the news of Queen Victoria's birth was announced, it took 16 hours to reach Bristol and 50 hours to reach Edinburgh. When she died in 1901, the announcement took seconds to reach the entire world through a series of submarine cables. Within a few years of her death, the Queen's favourite quote-unquote electrician would continue to push the bounds of wireless telegraphy even further. Marconi was born in 1874 into a wealthy Irish-Italian family. His mother was from the Jameson family of Irish whisky distillers, and so he was afforded the opportunity to read widely and forge a career in experimental science. On holiday in the Alps, he was reading Hertz's biography when he got the idea for a practical communications array. When he was back in Bologna, he got his family's permission to use the upper floor of their house as a lab. First, he duplicated Hertz's experiments and then he tried to send signals from one end of the attic to another, when, in 1895, Marconi successfully transmitted a wireless signal two kilometres. He left Italy after the Italian government proved not to be interested in it. A short time later, he went to England with the hope of securing intellectual and financial support for his experiments. 
only 22 years old, Marconi found it easy to navigate London society and enjoyed much support from influential sections of the scientific community. Within two years, Marconi was relaying messages using his Griffone system developed in Italy across the River Thames from the Houses of Parliament to St Thomas's Hospital. In Italy, he had his butler to assist him, but while in London, he was getting assistance from William Court Gully, the Speaker of the House of Commons. Marconi was quickly accepted into the establishment, but he still made enemies. When he walked across the Queen's private lawns, he was ejected from her estate. When the Queen wanted, quote-unquote, another electrician, she was told, quote, Alas, Your Majesty, England has no Marconi. So the young man was retrieved and brought back to Osborne House. The successful completion of wireless tests in May 1897 led Marconi to say, quote, The calm of my life ended then. Marconi's system transmitted and received wireless signals over the distances of first 91 metres, then 1.6 kilometres, then 9.6 kilometres and then nearly 14.5 kilometres. This was considered to be all the more impressive as it was over water, previously something considered impossible. After this, Marconi linked Bath and Salisbury, which were 55 kilometres apart. This was not just more powerful apparatus, but also from the elevation of transmitters. In November 1897, Marconi established the world's first permanent wireless station on the Isle of Wight, with a 36.6 metre tall transmitter mast, and by March 1899 he had undertaken the world's first international wireless transmission between England and France. The event was an international spectacle, with the French government, army and navy present to witness the proceedings. The first message to Normandy was in Morse code, dot 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 dash. V for victory. The messages that followed were telegrams of congratulations from around the UK and France. So impressed were the French that they offered Marconi the use of their naval vessels to help make more detailed tests. When Marconi tried to transmit a third wireless station on a lighthouse ship, the signals from the three stations interfered and jammed each other because they were transmitting so many frequencies. If wireless technology were to have a future, it needed to be tuned, so electromagnetic radiation would only occupy a small part of the spectrum. Oliver Lodge in 1897 had been working on what he called his synteny, first patented in 1897, which demonstrated that tuning of electromagnetic radiation was possible both in practice and in theory. In the weeks that followed Marconi's experiments, him and his assistants worked on reducing the spread of the signals so that South Foreland and East Goodwin could communicate without Wimericks receiving a single dot. Marconi was very conscious of Lodge's patent and tried not to violate it, but it still caused controversy. Lodge later sued Marconi in 1910 and settled in the end for £15,000. In December 1901, Marconi claimed to have transmitted 3,540 kilometres away 
from Cornwall to Newfoundland, but many believe it was impossible. But it didn't perturb Marconi at all. Marconi was utterly convinced that wireless telegraphy was more than a scientific curiosity. It was a commercial one. Wired telegraphy had spread over the previous half century to many places all over the world. Wired telegraphy was fast, reliable and cheap, but Marconi thought Rather than compete with massive corporations with state monopolies, he would try and fill in the blank spaces on the map by aiming to develop his technology towards smaller communities. In 1898, he was commissioned to link Hawaii in just such a venture. While the military applications of the technology soon dawned on the British, with their fleet of ships that might just need to communicate with one another. In a case of existential panic, the British under J.A. Fleming and Captain Baden-Baden-Powell, brother of the founder of the Scout Movement, Robert, and yes, I didn't screw up the recording, his name really was Baden-Baden-Powell, urged the adoption of the technology to increase the fighting efficiency of the Navy. Morse code was the only method of communication for wireless telegraphy in 1906 meaning it was very reminiscent of wired telegraphy. The reason is that transmitting the human voice is very difficult. The microphone was developed in the 1870s by David Hughes. While to transmit the voice, rather than just dots and dashes, needed continuous radio waves to produce the sound. Canadian inventor Reginald Fassenden is credited with being the first person to put the two together. In the 1890s, he developed a system for generating continuous radio waves, and by 1900, he was experimenting with ways to superimpose the sound from a microphone onto a radio wave and transmit the result. By 1909, wireless telegraphy was in such widespread use that few passenger ships could leave port without it. A dramatic incident occurred in 1909 with a collision between the White Star Line Republic and the Italian ship Florida. The radio operator was able to get his emergency wireless transmission functioning and broadcast a call for help. John Binns, the man operating the radio, sent the distress code CQD, which was Marconi's official distress code. SOS was not yet being used widespreadly. The distress calls were received and a coordinated rescue effort was launched, with the loss of only four lives out of 1,400. Jack Binns was called a hero, but he insisted he was just doing his job. It led to the image of the heroic wireless operator in the minds of the public, securely helping with public adoption of the radio. This was only reinforced with John Phillips and Harold Bride of the Titanic three years later. It took until 1906 for Fassenden to work out how to send voices. On Christmas Eve 1906, Fassenden broadcasted. After alerting nearby shipping to expect an important transmission, Fassenden simply started to speak. Telegraph operators in the North Atlantic and Caribbean were accustomed to hearing the squeaks of Morse code from their headsets. But when they heard somebody speaking at them, they were reportedly astonished. Fassenden followed up with music from his Edison phonograph, a rendition on the violin and readings from the Bible. 
The development of the thermionic valve and amplification technology meant that the radio emerged as a viable system of broadcast later on. The first commercial licenses were issued in 1920 in the United States, with the first commercial broadcast being the declaration of the Harding v. Cox presidential election results on the 11th of November. The sound quality of the first transmissions was sketchy, and much effort was put into making them better. It was Edwin Howard Armstrong who recognised the acoustic benefits of superimposing an audio source onto the carrier. It was done by modulating its frequency rather than its amplitude, leading to FM frequency modulated as opposed to AM amplitude modulation radio. We've talked before about how nations are inventions. Benedict Anderson called them imagined communities, meaning they are entities we may feel a part of, even though we may have never met most of the people in these communities. Anderson states that they started in the 16th century with the birth of the printing press, and then in the 18th century with newspaper and novels intensifying the appeal of the nation and led to a weekly or daily engagement with the problems of the state. Radio allows for an hourly engagement with the nation and allows for a far more immediate and widespread dissemination of information than any previous technology. Radio can extend particular events and sound across the nation, moments of celebration, commemoration, remembrance, sporting events and high drama may all be shown to a population across thousands of kilometres away from where it took place. So, as we move towards the commercial use of spoken word radio, where are we? Radio was invented most primitively in 1895, using Morse code. By this point it wasn't called radio. Radio waves were called Hertzian waves and the term radio only began to be used in the United States with the start of the commercial radiotelegraphy enterprise. Many in Britain preferred to use the term the wireless as promoted by the Marconi company. Even today in Britain, some people do still call it the wireless. It was in 1906 when, in Berlin, Germany, by international conference, it was decided to be called radio derived from the Latin radius, meaning a ray or beam of light. The early years of radio was a wild west for the radio spectrum, with much freedom and therefore experimentation taking place. Many radio enthusiasts were pushing this new type of technology from their own homes, with magazine publications like Wireless World and Radio News. There was an extraordinary amount of variety in radio setups of the day. Amateur radio was quite often well set up and powerful, nothing compared to commercial radio, but strong enough to interfere with it. As Lewis Coe says, quote, in coastal areas where most of the commercial stations were located, the ether was often crowded with an absolute bedlam of signals, all trying to communicate with somebody. The commercial stations with their powerful transmitters could pretty well wipe out the amateurs. However, when it came time for the commercial station to switch over to the receive mode, nearby signals completely blocked the commercial receiver. It was not unheard of for commercial stations to politely ask the amateur operator to stand by until the commercial messages could be cleared. 
Sometimes the amateurs would not cooperate, and the language that was passed between stations was far from polite. Close quotes. People were communicating with one another. In one description, there were communities in any major city of any major country where people would monitor the airways in the hope of detecting a signal transmission by other experimenters, and establish contact with that person, and repeat again, and try to increase range. It was also customary to keep a QSL code, which would detail the time, frequency, band and equipment used to try and keep in contact with people. This type of communication was creating new wireless communities of people who'd never met one another before. Charles Conrad, who started sending out his voice and music over his amateur station, 8XK in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was an employee of the Westinghouse Electric Company. And the company vice president, Harry Davies, was impressed by the enthusiasm of Conrad's programs. It became apparent to Westinghouse that there was a ready market for radio receiving sets if they could supply the program material that would interest listeners. Thus, KDKA, the pioneering broadcasting station, became a landmark for early listeners. KDKA had a strong signal that could be heard throughout the US during nighttime, while another 8MK in Detroit was also possible to be heard throughout the United States due to the lack of interference from other stations. But we do need to remember a couple of things before we look at the expansion of the radio. It's the difference in size between the UK and the US. In the UK, there is very little wilderness, meaning you're never far away from civilization. The US is different. It is vast. It was still also very rural at the time, with not much change in the 1920s from how many lived in the US Civil War. It was still mostly horse-drawn, and even light was still kerosene. The movies became a weekly trip at most, and many people did not even have a telephone. Some may have had phonographs, and the more talented could play piano. But even if city dwellers might have had more activities for them to do, it didn't mean they could afford them. Broadcasting radio, therefore, opened up a new vista for isolated families, and became the standard source for spare time entertainment. Radio stations began to spring up all across the country, faster than the government could regulate them. Stations basically began to pick their own frequencies and went on air with whatever power level they could afford. In 1916, David Sarnoff, who started as an office boy with the American Marconi Company, had an idea. He described his idea as a piece of equipment, quote, which would receive several different wavelengths with a throw of a switch and be supplied with amplifying tubes and a loud speaking telephone, all of which can be neatly mounted in a box. Sarnoff would invent what we think of as the wireless receiver or the radio. Sarnoff would later become the head of the RCA, Radio Corporation of America since it was still expensive to buy a fully made radio receiver. Many people, therefore, built their own. Parts companies multiplied, and newspapers and magazines printed guides in how to make one too. In 1922, Herbert Hoover addressed 
the first national radio conference and said, quote, We have witnessed in the last four or five months one of the astounding things that has come under my observation of American life. The department estimates that today more than 600,000 persons possess wireless telephone receiving sets, whereas there were less than 50,000 sets a year ago. We are indeed today upon the threshold of a new means of widespread communication of intelligence that has the most profound importance from the point of view of public education and welfare. In both Britain and America, radio adoption was huge, but there was a difference of approach in the two countries. America had its more laissez-faire and egalitarian attitude, basically letting anybody who wanted to set up their own station set up their own station. In Britain, with its more patriarchal Victorian morals, they didn't want to let anybody set up a radio station and broadcast so a licence fee was set up for anybody wanting to listen. The licence fee would go towards a broadcasting company who would be responsible for radio in Britain, the BBC. In the early years in America, paid commercials were slow to develop. This wasn't a free service. As we saw, radio stations were being set up to promote electronic stores. This system lasted a while, with David Sarnoff saying that radio should be devoted to the education and entertainment of the public. Yet radio could not flourish without more money. The only alternative would have been to impose a licence fee like in Europe, but that was never really considered. It was thought that everybody had the right to own a receiver and listen at no cost, while radio owners thought it could hamper possible profits. Early radio stations were viewed as electrical instruments, and no attempts were made to conceal their function, but they were viewed as not elegant enough for a parlour. By the late 1920s, the radio was no longer battery-powered, and it was now being connected to the mains. Listening habits changed too. Few listeners were interested in connecting as far away as possible, and just interested in good receptions to listen to their favourite programmes. Most programmes were sponsored, and network broadcasting made it possible to produce shows using the best talent and send it all over the country. Network broadcasting took longer than expected. AT&T thought the transmission of the human voice for the benefit of the public was their exclusive right, and they owned the WEAF station in New York, and so they did not want to lease high-grade audio lines that would be required to interconnect the stations. The only other cross-national lines were a couple by the Postal Telegraph. It took a while, but eventually an impasse was brokered by skillful negotiation, where AT&T agreed to stay out of radio broadcasting. The first network programme was in January 1927, and joined 25 stations, reaching as far west as Kansas City. The following year, coast-to-coast -coast operations were in effect. In Britain, of course, we went down a different route. A more European and interventionist approach. Between 1905 and 1914, you needed to buy a licence at the post office for, quote, those who wish to go in for science experiments, close quotes. By March 1913, 942 licences had been bought. 
The war obviously caused greater government oversight of the wireless spectrum, but the war gave great advance to radio technology, and rather than Morse code, it was the spoken voice that attracted most people to the idea of radio. In 1920, the first British radio broadcast went live from Marconi's Chelmsford workshop, broadcasting two daily programmes. It could be heard over a thousand miles away. The broadcasts were essentially tests, testing the technology and whether the public would be interested in the wireless. In June 1920, a broadcast of Dame Nelly, supposedly the world's very best artist, did for the radio what the coronation of 1953 did for the television. By late 1920 and 1921, there were wireless enthusiasts all over the country. Some became manufacturers or salesmen, and some would become the earliest proselytizers. In the magazine Wireless World, in 1921, there were 127 radio stations in Britain. By this point already, the British were seeing the development in American wireless and seeing how far behind they were. Radio was booming in America, with 219 stations by May 1922. Despite high-mindedness in America against advertising, it was still the only way to fund it. As late as 1925, a congressman tried to introduce a bill to abolish all radio advertising. But in America, the mood had changed. It wasn't, however, British opposition to radio that influenced the British. More, it was the chaos of the spectrum in the United States that pushed them to this model. Coming from a late mover advantage in Radio as Entertainment, it allowed for the British to criticise the American model and see where it was going wrong. The multiplicity of radio stations in America had resulted in a jumbling of signals and attempts at blasting and blanketing rival programming. Two British visitors went to the United States to look into radio. The first report came back stating the need for British business to strengthen its initiative in radio development. The second said it was impossible to have a large number of firms broadcasting. It would only see chaos. By January 1922, broadcasting had started regularly in Britain. The Marconi Company were the dominant broadcaster, but not a monopoly. Many licences to start a station were denied, but some, like a couple in Manchester and in Birmingham, were granted. These new stations were in constant competition with the Marconi Company. In 1922, the Post Office initiated discussions between the commercial companies involved in wireless broadcast. The Marconi Company was big enough to have a regular broadcasting service. However, none of the other broadcasters would have tolerated a Marconi monopoly. On May the 4th, 1922, in the first full statement on broadcasting in the House of Commons, it was announced that British firms who were manufacturers of wireless apparatus would be allowed to apply for permission to launch broadcasting systems. On the 23rd of May, 1922, the big six of radio broadcasting in Britain met and were asked by the post office to form a committee to consider and prepare a scheme for the general meeting. The committee would have to answer the question, should all broadcasting stations be under one and the same management, or should there be more than one management? 
In a further memorandum prepared for the committee on the 25th of May, the name British Broadcasting Company was written down. The Big Six agreed the terms, and the name of the British Broadcasting Company and shares were set aside for the participating members. After haggling about things like radio receivers and batting off criticisms about the formation of a monopoly, on the 14th of November the BBC made its first broadcast. The BBC's first week of regular broadcasting was livened up by the broadcast of the election results of the 1922 general election. There were many listening-in parties, the Times reported, though the BBC stopped broadcasting at 1am in order not to interfere with newspaper sales and giving away the key information about who had won. For two decades, the BBC followed the rules that it could only broadcast daily news between 6 and 11. Within six weeks of its inaugural broadcast to London and the southeast of England in 1922, the BBC had given sales of radio receivers, had upped the sales of receivers to 36,000 people. But by the end of 1924, it was 1 million sales, and by 1926, 2.25 million radio receivers were sold. The BBC gained a lot of listeners, but financially it was not doing that well. But the 1926 general strike temporarily halted newspaper production, making the BBC the primary source of quote-unquote reliable news about the strikes. However, the crisis left the BBC in a catch-22. The BBC knew it was broadcasting at the will of the government, and the government might take over the BBC if it stepped out of line. However, people expected a balanced and truthful news service. Yet the hierarchy at the BBC did not overly back the strikes either, and so the government allowed it to continue on its way. Indeed, the BBC broadcast a speech from the Prime Minister from the director of the BBC's own home and banned the Labour Party from speaking on air. Supporters of the strike labelled the BBC as the BFC, the British Falsehood Company. Jean Seaton, the official historian of the BBC, described the incident as, quote, modern propaganda in its British form, close quotes. The BBC, however, did not do that well out of the situation with the government. That the BBC should be removed from commercial hands and turned into a non-commercial crown-chartered organisation was proposed. So, the BBC would later be renamed a corporation, not a company. The British model was copied in Europe, India, and most ominously in Nazi Germany. Radio was the primary mode of propaganda. Hitler's propagandist Joseph Goebbels described radio as, quote, the eighth great power, the most influential and important intermediary between a spiritual movement and a nation, between the idea and the people. Close quotes. Radio was vital for Nazi propaganda. Quote, All of Germany hears the Führer with the people's receiver, close quotes, said one Nazi poster in 1936. While the mass production of the receiver Volksempfanger VE301 called the people's radio receiver was called the people's receiver and it made radio affordable for all. These receivers were often limited to only picking up frequencies used by Nazis. Albert Speer, in 1946, at the Nuremberg Trials, said, quote, 
Hitler's first dictatorship differed in one fundamental point from all its predecessors in history. His was the first dictatorship in the present period of modern technical development, a dictatorship which made complete use of all technical means in a perfect manner for the domination of its own nation. Through technical devices such as radio and loudspeaker, 80 million people were deprived of independent thought. It was thereby possible to subject them to the will of one man. Close quotes. The explosion of radio and the fact that they don't follow arbitrary lines we call borders means that there was a need for an international conference and careful regulation of the spectrum. The Geneva Plan of 1926 did that. The Geneva Plan proposed specific frequencies to be allowed to signatory nations, though the Soviet Union ignored it. This regulation immediately limited the spectrum and meant that it was now a natural limited resource. Early radio, especially in Britain, was faced by pirate radio stations. Radio Normandy was bankrolled by Leonard Klug, an eccentric entrepreneur who broadcast the station which could be heard in southern England. Radio Normandy's mix of relaxed chat and popular dance music provided a more fun alternative to the BBC's mix of religious programming and serious talk. This was to continue all the way into the 1960s with the famous Radio Caroline, a pirate station set out on two ships moored off the Isle of Man in the Irish Sea and one off the coast of Essex. It was set up in 1964 as a counter to the BBC's turgid light entertainment and regularly reached 10 million listeners. Other stations included Radio London, which was able to get the exclusive right to Sgt Pepper eight days before schedule. These pirate stations resulted in UK legislation to ban them all and make it even illegal to listen to pirate stations. But the BBC responded with the launch of Radio 1, this exciting new station full of exciting new broadcasts. It wasn't long after Radio's introduction that it was embraced by politics and became a geopolitical issue. With the development of shortwave radio, it enabled for radio signals to be ricocheted between the surface and the atmosphere, carrying whatever wanted to be sent. What followed was numerous European countries in the interwar years broadcasting into other territories. The most egregious of these was Radio Moscow broadcasting in all different languages to all places over the world. But it wasn't just Russia battling to get their ideologies out there. As James Wood notes, quote, The four big players, Britain, Germany, Italy and the USSR, represented British imperialism, German National Socialism, Fascism and Communism, respectively. On the 19th of December 1932, at 9.30am, the BBC went global for the transmission and broadcasting house in London, delivering a message to the peoples of New Zealand and Australia. Later, it would go all over the empire. The BBC Empire Service needed to be the voice of the colonial master and news of the imperial community. The result of the Empire Service was driven by the BBC to get the king to broadcast to the empire. Despite getting a radio from the BBC in 1924, it took until 1932 to persuade the king to broadcast. 
On Christmas Day in 1932, George V delivered the first personal message from the monarch to the people of Britain and the Empire. With the King in Sandringham, his people made up a makeshift studio, and the speech was transmitted to Broadcasting House and then relayed through the Empire Broadcasting House. It felt that it needed to be broadcast simultaneously, so 3pm British time was chosen. Prime evening in India, early morning for Canada and the Caribbean. The Antipodes were the worst served, but many still got up to listen at 2am. Written by the Empire's poet Rudyard Kipling, the speech sounded something like this. Through one of the marvels of modern science, I am enabled this Christmas day to speak to all my peoples throughout the empire. I take it as a good omen that wireless should have reached its present perfection at a time when the empire has been linked in closer union. For it offers us immense possibilities to make that union closer still. Creating an on-air community, listening to the Empire service, became a way for people to connect with their community and share a sense of Britishness, when national identity was changing rapidly with the independent movements and greater autonomy. The vast scope of the Empire service changed in 1939 to the Overseas Service. It was an ability to transmit propaganda. However, with it being technologies that were still new to many, one BBC transmission supposed for Australia was broadcast to India by accident. The broadcast said the war was a fight to keep Australia white. The broadcast was later used by the Japanese as propaganda material. There was much mispronunciation of Indian names and general mismanagement of the service. Slowly, with the introduction of Hindi, Burmese, Tamil and Bengali services, among others, the BBC Overseas Service improved over time. For Eric Blair, who was supervising cultural programming at the Indian Language Services, it was a moral dilemma, a case of, quote, defending the bad against the worse, close quotes, the Raj against the Reich. Eric Blair is, of course, better known as George Orwell, and outside of Broadcasting House there is a statue of him with a preface from Animal Farm. Quote, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Close quotes. We've talked a lot about the development of the radio, but what of radio's impact on the ordinary person? Well, the most famous story about radio, I think, and famous enough to be mentioned by Queen in their song, Radio Gaga, was the broadcast of War of the Worlds by Orson Welles in October 1938, which people thought to be so realistic they believed it to be real. Supposedly apartment blocks emptied as mass hysteria swept across the country. One woman in Pittsburgh attempted suicide. Others, supposedly, went to a mass prayer session to seek salvation. In reality, the reported mass hysteria over the broadcast was probably overegged, but it demonstrated that within 15 years or so, radio had indeed become a very powerful medium. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, 
This world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds, as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, Intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th... Radio for much of America's mid-history was one of the few places for real balance. Father Charles Coughlin was an ordained Roman Catholic priest and dubbed the radio priest. It is estimated that a third of all radio listeners would tune in to listen to him about 40 million people. He was formerly a supporter of Franklin D. Roosevelt until the New Deal. However, in the mid-1930s, his broadcasts took an anti-Semitic line, and when, two weeks after the Kristallnacht pogrom, he announced that, quote, Jewish persecution only followed after Christians were persecuted, close quotes. Stations across the nation dropped him and stricter regulations were enacted. Coughlin was labelled the father and pioneer of hate radio. Radio allowed for charismatic speakers and gave them enormous power over their audiences. That voice in the ear proved to be very powerful. Hate radio would reach its unfortunate zenith in 1994 in Rwanda, where Radio Rwanda, the official state radio station, preyed upon fears of Rwanda's Hutu-majority community by broadcasting a relentless demonization of the Tutsis. The use of the word cockroach and wild conspiracies and the use of the phrase final war pushed many into committing crimes against humanity. The International Criminal Tribunal, which convened in Tanzania, said that the use of hate radio directly contributed to the death of 50,000 people, while controllers of the station were given life in prison for their role. Radio is, of course, not just about sending out communications, but also to detect things. In radio's early history, detecting things was not a good thing. Pioneers were locked in permanent struggle for their radios not to find any interference. They would elevate the apparatus as high as possible to extend range and not find interference. But it was Russian Alexander Popov who noted that radio's biggest weakness could be its biggest strength. He observed in the Baltic Sea that a distinct pattern of interference could be applied to detect objects. It took until the mid-1930s for experiments to pick up on this new technology. With memories in Britain of Zeppelin raids, Britain's National Physical Laboratory was tasked with looking into it, initially testing out what were called death rays, which were effectively invented by conmen looking to fleece money out of nervous Brits and the British government. 
but what the men at the NPL came back with was a report called, quote, Detection and Location of Aircraft by Radio Methods, close quotes. It wasn't quite a death ray, but well received and useful for accurately determining the position of aircraft in the sky. They called it at the time the Radio Direction and Finding, the RDF, while the US Navy called it Radio Detection and Ranging, or radar. By June 1935, radar could detect aircraft 26 kilometers away. By the end of the year, it was 96 kilometers away, and 161 kilometers by 1936. Radar was crucial to the victory at the Battle of Britain, and is still in use today, of course, in air traffic control and at sea. Like all great inventions, radio has managed to adapt and change. Faced with the threat of television and the internet, radio has adapted so you can listen to it on the internet and the television, while DAB, Digital Audio Broadcasting, has seen the radio station come back into fashion. Today, there is an estimated 40,000 radio stations in operation around the world. The radio station has grown and expanded due to the ease of its availability, and that niche stations can now reach further afield than ever before. Sport remains one of the primary uses of radio. In Britain and the US, there is many a sporting station. And even in the era of the internet and television, sport remains at the forefront of the radio. The first live sports commentary was the 11th of April 1921, with a lightweight boxing match between Johnny Dundee and Johnny Ray. Baseball followed, and a day later a Davis Cup match between Australia and Great Britain was broadcast. In Britain, it took longer for sport to be broadcast, with newspaper proprietors worried it would reduce sales. Yet it was taking off in Australia, with cricket and rugby commentaries in Sydney, and horse racing in Melbourne. In Canada, ice hockey commentary was the most popular. Following the BBC being awarded a royal charter, it undertook to broadcast live sport. A rugby match, then football commentary, Arsenal vs Sheffield United. You might have thought that with all the other options to consume live sports, radio might have died away by now. But instead, with the rise of things like pay-to-view television, radio has seen a resurgence. The most famous use of radio in popular culture, I think, is for music. The first use of radio for music was in 1920, with Dame Nellie Melba. The singer sang a few arias in English, French and Italian and finished it off with the British National Anthem. So powerful was the broadcast that it could be heard all over Europe and even as far as Newfoundland in Canada. Radio proved to be one of the key drivers behind the popular music expansion following the Second World War. The American Songbook especially is filled with odes to the radio. Pirate radio in Britain, with the BBC's reluctance to broadcast what people wanted to hear, resulted in the creation of Radio 1, and was one of the key drivers of the youth culture that still lives with us today. There have been calls that radio has been dying for years. Video Killed the Radio Star and Radio Gaga by Queen have both presupposed that radio will be overtaken by video. And while the idea of transmitting via radio waves has changed, the idea of broadcasting your voice has not. 
Radio has partially shifted to the internet, but listenership rates are still high. 90% of British adults listen to the radio, 94% in Sweden, 94% in Poland, 98% in China, and 76% in America. Bob Shannon, the BBC's director of radio, said that radio's inherent qualities were the reason for this growth. Radio, he said, was the ultimate personalised service. There is still a lot of amateur radio going around too. I recently visited the National Radio Centre in Bletchley Park, where there is a small radio museum. The whole world of amateur radio is still out there. It can be very cheap to set up, but like many things, there's a status to having the most expensive kit, which can go up to the tens of thousands. While we were at the National Radio Centre, we had incoming transmissions from Sweden and the Ukraine-Russian border. Many radio enthusiasts make it their life's hobby to transmit from the oddest and most unique locations possible, uninhabited islands or up the top of mountains. Some people send selfies and some send radio transmissions as their proof of work. Radio technology is in everything. We focus mostly on the actual radio medium. But the underlying technology is in everything. In the modern smartphone there is the phone signal, SMS, cellular data and Bluetooth and then of course GPS. Radio waves are everywhere. Radio signals are not just an old technology, it looks to the future too. Radio engineers are advancing the use of radio technology in many different ways. Wearable radio technology will change the way we interact with the world. Data on everything will be gathered wirelessly from the internet and presented back to us on a projected service. Short-range radio will connect all the devices to create a cohesive system. You will be able to project a keypad onto your hands, take a photo by punching your fingers together and check the time by circling a line on your wrist. All this will be possible by the possibilities of radio tech. Yet, 70% of radio spectrum is still sitting idle at any one time. Smart radio is a groundbreaking and perhaps the next step in wireless communication. It is designed to exploit unused parts of the radio spectrum to avoid wireless traffic jams. Smart radio will recognise which frequencies are quiet and pick one or more in which to transmit and receive information. This will reduce congestion and encourage competitive commercial use. Radios are everywhere, and they have been described as the everywhere medium. It is the world's most popular form of communication. A global audience of billions, from advanced countries to poverty-stricken ones. And radio, of course, is seen something of a renaissance in recent years. Radio is very easy to move, and we can listen as we travel, at the workplace, as we cycle, walk or run, as we garden in the kitchen or in a sports venue as we watch the game. As folklore goes, people on the last day of the football season with their radios on them to try and find out the other results that could mean a team would get promoted or relegated. Media theorist Marshall McLuhan noted that radio is inimitably woven into human experience of space and expressions of territoriality. Radio sounds, he said, have an unrivaled power to shape and pattern their own unique space. Radio, he says, functions as a national, even global tribal drum. Taking inspiration from the natural world, 
He suggested that radio could usefully be imagined as electronic songbird, a sound that is neither straightforward impulsive nor emotionally expressive, but a sonic strategy employed by a living creature to acoustically produce and define an occupied space. Radio brings us everything we need, from music, chat, news, comedy, drama, while the infamous shipping forecasts in Britain show the uses of radio for literally all forms of communication. Due to technology, radio can bring people together like little else. UNESCO estimates that 95% of the world's population can receive radio broadcasts. And with technology, we are seeing not the breakdown of the radio, but its increasing popularity as we can tune in to local, national and international stations. For all these reasons, radio is listed at number 68 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.